1: This morning, Republican Congressman Steve King is facing growing calls for his resignation, even from his own party.
2: What he said was reprehensible and ought to lead to his resignation from Congress. I wish he'd resign, frankly.
1: Overnight, King stripped of his committee assignments. Punishment after the Iowa Republican told the New York Times, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? King says the comments were mischaracterized. I am simply an American nationalist. A resolution but that explanation, a not enough for his colleagues, today voting on a resolution of disapproval. I call on my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to join me in breaking the definite silence and letting our resounding combination Condemnation be heard. The top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, says King's comments are unworthy of his position. But at the White House, the president is mum.
3: What about Steve King's remarks on white supremacy?
0: I don't. I haven't been following it.
1: I really haven't been following. It. Now, despite the very forceful reprimand here, King seems determined to stay in Congress, saying in a statement, I will continue to point out the truth and work with all the vigor that I have to represent Iowans for at least the next two years.
0: All right. That's an ABC uh, story that took place about three years ago. And it's a big story because it has repercussions for us now. It's a personal story for me because this is a friend of mine that I've known and worked with for years and have tremendous respect for it was a tragedy it was a horrific thing to watch and we should have known it was like a it was like a template for what was to come and so now congressman steve king has uh, has the time actually and has had the time to put this down in writing and he's written a book called walking through the fire my fight for the heart And soul of America, Congressman King was an Iowa State Senator for uh, from 1996 to 2002, and then he served in the U.S. Congress from 2003 to 2021. So, lots of experience, lots of history. So let's welcome him to the show, Congressman King. Good morning, and thank you for joining us.
2: Good morning, Sandy. I'm so happy to be on with you today.
0: You know what? Can I just say right up front? This is not on your resume, but you really are a great writer. You really are. I, I didn't well, get to read all the book, but I had trouble not. I had trouble putting it down. I mean, really, you're a good writer.
2: Well, thank you, Sandy. You know, I put a lot of work into it, of course, and uh, I knew when this hit me that. That the only alternative. I've been canceled in nearly, nearly, nearly every venue in America, uh, locally as well as all across the, across the country. And I knew that the only way I could get this message out was to sit and write a book that doesn't allow anybody else to come in and redact it or edit it or amend it and footnote it with all the facts, because I wanted at least one place where this whole story was told accurately. And I so I'd sit down in my deck at 5:30 in the morning or so it was still dark with my coffee pot and I would type until my fingers and brain no longer were could be coordinated and then uh, go back again the next day so it took a while but I'm I'm proud of the work and I'm I'm really glad you said that I just yeah. Um, I, I didn't think of myself as a writer.
0: You are a writer, though. But they say it's not, it's not too much of a surprise because you're very articulate. You always have been. You're like a professor. And I want to get into that in a second. But I could just as an aside, <laughs> this reminds me of something I just saw recently. I've been watching uh, a three-part series on Ulysses S. Grant on the History Channel. And your story about writing your, your memoirs reminds me of Grant, who had been so maligned And mischaracterized, you know, he was a drunk, he was just lucky, he was whatever, fill in the blanks. Uh, But he wanted to set the record straight, and he actually got very sick and finished his book and then just died promptly. But his book is powerful, and his story, of course, was never really, never became part of the American bloodstream, uh, because uh, there were forces that did not want his story to prevail. And so in this case, did you have any trouble finding a publisher for your book?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I contacted many of them, and I asked people to go out and reach out for me, too. And of all my contacts with the publishers, and I would guess there are nearly 40 of them, some of them were just by email and text where I could figure out how to do that, uh, I got zero response from that. And then uh, I got some good advice from John Fund, who has been a friend. He said, you need a you need an agent, a, a literary agent, to represent you to these publishers. And so I set about trying to find one of them, and I can't there's a website where you can do a sort to your subject matter and who would be the best uh, literary agents for you. I sorted that down to a number pretty close to 40 and sent out to all of them. I got five or six answers there. Uh, They were all polite, and they were all no. And so I was sitting there with not a way to crack into a publisher and not a way to get a literary agent to represent me. And I thought, I'm going to have to run my copy machine and stand on the street corner and wave these things around. Uh, But uh, Providence intervened and a young man who wanted to become a literary agent entered into my small orbit here, and uh, he offered to help. And he, he kind of called me out of the blue through a, due to a contact, and I, I, his 49-minute conversation, I remember with him, we just absolutely clicked. His name is Marcus Constantino, he's in, he's in, the, in Colorado, and he put up he put up uh, to me, he said, I'll set up a Zoom uh, for you. There will be four of us on it, and I'll tell the story the way I like to tell it, although I kind of knew what was going to happen. And that is that in those four pictures, here's mine. Uh, here's Marcus, whom I'd not seen before, a fellow by the name of Gary Tarashita, And uh, the uh, the fourth screen that popped up was the face of Colonel Oliver North. And so in that pause <laughs> where, uh, you know, when you're in a conference, who, the person that speaks first in that time is the one with the most power. Uh, that was Ollie. And he opened up this way, he said, um, well, I recognize the face of Steve King, the last time we saw each other, we were in Iraq together, and ISIS was shooting at us,
0: but we were (laughs) out of range.
2: (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) <laughs> so I knew in that moment we were going to get a contract with Fidelis Publishing, which is a partnership between Colin Oliver North and the wonderful Gary Tereshita, and they've been terrific to work with, and, and it took um, really pretty close to more than a half a year to get the product out that we were all satisfied with. And But they didn't ask me to change any substance at all. Their publishing company is built to promote Christianity and Western civilization. That's why we didn't have to change any substance that exactly fit into that mold.
0: Wow, that's that's a great story, and God's provision for sure. And I also think mm-hmm. it illustrates how truly canceled you were. I mean, this is an amazing story, and we want to talk about it. But I want to make one more transitional thing before we get into the story, because I did not know you were from a law enforcement family. I thought, you, I thought you were a farmer from Iowa. What's the law enforcement part of this story?
2: <laughs> oh, well, that was my father. He was a manager of state police radio stations throughout his career. And so the good part of that with Dad was he's still he was the best critical thinker that I have ever encountered, and I've encountered a lot of smart people in my privileged life here. But um, he taught me how to think, and uh, he also he would lay down on the on the supper table at night. It would be here here's the Constitution and here's the Code of Iowa. He so couldn't put the federal code in there it'd, be, it'd break the table leg, but he'd do the COVID code of Iowa. And then he would pick out a statute, and he'd go, here's what this statute says. And I'm going to tell you where this came from. The authority of our rights come from God. They are enumerated here in this Constitution, the supreme law of the land. The framework of that is what maintains Congress's limitations, and Congress's limitations maintain, to a degree, state limitations. So you read this text, you don't want to comply by this law here are your choices. First, comply with it. Second is, you can go lobby your legislator to change it, or you can run for office and do it yourself. That's the world we live in. And he drilled it into me with clarity.
0: And that that shows the way I remember you when we first, honestly, I'm trying to remember, I think uh, you came to D.C. when I was almost finished. I was president of Concerned Women for America, but I interviewed you Many times. I don't remember if I interviewed you from Chicago mm-hmm. when you were a state rep. I don't recall, but uh, our paths crossed so mm-hmm. many times uh, over the, the mm-hmm. life issue, all kinds of things, because you were good on everything. But one of the things that I remember is your you always talked about Western civilization. That was a huge thing for you. And why is that? Why that?
2: Well, you know, that more is something that exploration uh, through that History, the world of history and culture, that I've essentially done myself. Uh, but I thought, as a as a young man, I, I actually I, I took courses in college that I, I chose to illuminate the things I needed to learn that I believed I needed to learn, and. Uh, after that, I climbed in the seat of a bulldozer and I sat there for quite a number of years—three and a half, four years at least—working for one fella. And I'd said I'd go to bed at night. I would pick up a book. I'd pull the classics, like *Wealth of Nations*, as an example, and I would read through that until I went to sleep. And then I'd wake up with the light on, book on my chest, and I'd read. I'd go back and read to where I went blurry on me and refresh it again. And then I'd sit there for ten to twelve hours thinking about what I'd read the night before. And as putting those pieces together, I presumed that the informed people in the world, which I thought there were a lot more of them than there actually are, all had this figured out, and I was trying to catch up. And so these pieces came together for me piece by piece of the foundations of our history, our culture. It goes back, of course, you've got to go back to Genesis and, and read through, and I haven't read every word in the Old Testament, but read through there in the New Testament, and go back to Moses, the foundation for the rule of law that emerges there in Judges. And then with that, the history of how we got to where we are, Mosaic Law, to Greece, to Rome, to Western Europe, to Old English Common Law and the Magna Carta, landing here in the New World when it did, um, 1607 in Jamestown when they landed there and, and built a cross and knelt and received communion and prayed that they would be evangelists for this land and the people in it and the world. When you read that prayer, it just all comes clear to me on um, this is a mission we have. And it's a gift to us. And it's what, of course, we've long talked about. We have to preserve it for the next generation and ask them to build and enhance it. So um, then looking at American history, uh, at that time as I grew up, my father taught me we have never lost a war. We will never lose a war. Well, he overlooked that we took a negotiated settlement in Korea. We know what happened in Vietnam. And I haven't seen that glorious victory by the United States since then. And I think we've lost some of our confidence in our principle. Those. So that's just a very fast race through um, what's happened over the course of about, you know, 40 years or so of educating myself.
0: You know, before we get into the details of what happened to you, we got that, that ABC report. But I think it's pretty easy to see, Congressman, from a 10,000-foot level right in this moment, uh, how this whole, like... Uh, now we know by the by the benefit of hindsight the 169 project 1619 project with new york times mm-hmm. the whole uh, uh design the the plan to make everything about race and uh the whole business about um critical race theory that whites are inherently you know racist and privileged uh and that any discussion of you know western civilization which is is the story of I there there it is for the most part the story of white Europeans uh, is anathema now and so your what happened to you was like kind of a just the beginnings of that and we didn't even know I think to the the extent and the links that they were going to de- de- go to destroy Western civilization and you were anathema for for many years and didn't even know it my guest again is Congressman Steve King and his book is called Walking Through the Fire. Uh, my fight for the heart and soul of America and uh, serving in Congress for as many years as he did and then the Iowa State Senate for a number of years he accomplished so many things one of the things that congressman King was famous for and still is was his fight against illegal immigration and uh, we're going to talk about that in just a second but also for the cause of life he was champion is remains a champion on the sanctity of human life and so um, he he had to be destroyed at all costs and that's uh, pretty much what happened, and so when we come back, Congressman, I want us to go to that. Uh, that I think we'll go to January tenth, two thousand and nineteen, and have you tell us kind of what happened on that night. But let's take a break first, and when we come back, Congress, Congressman Steve King will tell us that story. We'll be right back. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio.
3: Iowa Congressman Steve King lost his seat in the House representing Iowa's 4th Congressional District in the June 2nd primary.
2: Whatever they might say about Steve King, I have never let you down and I never will let you down.
3: Iowa was one of eight states, alongside Washington, D.C., that held primaries while the country manages bursts of civil unrest amid the global pandemic. From this atypical voter setting came the end of King's 17-year conservative tenure. In recent days, King has used Facebook to post memes regarding the nationwide George Floyd protests. They're consistent with a pattern of deliberately polarizing offensive and at times racist rhetoric that has characterized his career.
2: Are you sorry for anything that you've said? I have nothing to apologize for, Dave.
3: Perhaps his most damning moment came in a New York Times interview where King questioned why terms like white supremacy should be considered offensive. He refused to resign following the comments, but lost his committee assignments. King has garnered criticism from both sides of the aisle throughout his career.
2: The House Republicans um, denounce his language. We do not believe in his language.
3: Replacing King's name on the ballot is State Senator Randy Feenstra, who out the incumbent by nearly three times and who earned the backing of significant Republican organizations.
0: The 4th District needs a seat at the table, an effective conservative voice. To me, this election is about real results, not campaign rhetoric.
3: Democrats may celebrate the ousting of King's ideologies, while Republicans may celebrate having a potentially more electable Republican on the ballot in November.
2: I've stood for every important principle that matters to full-spectrum constitutional Christian conservatives, because I actually am one. All
0: right, uh, that's a report from The Hill, and um, Congressman Steve King is our guest. Now his book is telling really what the true story was there, and it is called... Walking through the fire, my fight for the heart and soul of America. And I would. It is interesting, Congressman, how a man uh, who was such a, has and is a courageous fighter on all the moral principles, uh, never giving, no, never holding quarter, always fighting, always fighting. Um, and now you are, you were just uh, destroyed, at least from your position, uh, labeled a white supremacist, a racist. Uh, let's let's. We have to talk about this, and I'm sure it's kind of painful. It can't help but be for you to go back and talk about this, but we must because people need to understand what happened. So, you you had just been reelected uh, for I forgot what how many terms in Congress, like by about two weeks when all ninth- hell broke loose, right?
2: Mm-hmm. That is right for the ninth term. Yes, Sandy.
0: All right. So uh, tell us what happened, and I probably you should do the chronology. Just tell us the story. The way you do in your book. I mean, uh, I know this. Oh. You say it started actually when you were heading Ted Cruz's campaign uh, in the Iowa caucuses. That's when the long knives came out after you, right?
2: That that is true. And um, that was in 2016. I became uh, I became Ted Cruz's national campaign co chairman, and. Um, I, I was sitting in a place where each, the First in the Nation Iowa caucus uh, makes the recommendations, the first recommendation to the rest of the country. And I'd been having more and more influence on that as the years went by, going clear back to Pat Buchanan in 1996, when uh, Buchanan assigned myself and my, my co-partner, Nancy Streck, 28 counties in Iowa to support him. And we went to work, and Buchanan won 24 of the 28 counties. Now you can fast forward to the rest of those caucuses, and I had more influence in, say, 2008 than I had before, and more influence in 2012 than I had before, and here came 2016, Governor Terry Branstead, the longest seated governor in the history of the United States of America, came out and said, I will not endorse anyone for president. Um, and he kept his word, but two weeks before the caucus, um, then he came out and said, anybody but Cruz. Well, there we were. So it was really it was Cruz's political capital against Trump's and Rubio's and Ben Carsons. It was my political capital against Governor Branstead. And Cruz won Iowa. The very next morning they were recruiting candidates to run against me in a primary. And it wasn't just Branstead there. There were you know, there were a number of others. So it started in two thousand and sixteen. I should point out that I, I spent not one dollar on advertising, not one door hanger or a radio ad or a TV ad or anything uh, in three elections in a row up until the fall of 2018, although they were pounding on me. They started a nationwide effort on this in, I'll say, September of 2018. By the time we got to two, two weeks out before the before the election in the fall of 2018, we were up um, at that period of time 12 to 13 points. And then with a week out, Steve Stivers, the chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, whose only job is to elect Republicans into into office, attacked me on Twitter. And then his communications director followed up with that. When he did that, that validated all the attacks that they had poured on me, and our numbers dropped. And and I won the election by 3.4%. Every other Iowan Republican lost in a congressional race that year. I was the only Republican standing. So, 24 hours or so after I win the election, they start to attack me, and uh, within um, so that takes in the fall, and then within two weeks of within two weeks of that election, then by then Governor Kim Reynolds came out and said, Congressman Ting King needs to decide what he wants to do, whether he wants to represent the values of the Fourth Congressional District or pause, pause, do something else. And when that came out, that was that was just the message that said, open season on Steve King, which we'd never seen before in the history of politics that I know of in Iowa. Uh, then, within another week or 10 days, I had a conference with um, Ted Cruz's campaign manager for president, uh, who said they're going to try again. Even though I just won the election, hadn't sworn into the next Congress yet, he said they're going to try again, and they're going to pick a time when the when, when they think that there's a lull in the media, and they can pour all of the heat of all of the media criticism on you. And he used these words, force you to resign. Now, that really hit me because the only way you force somebody to resign is if you've got enough dirt. Uh, and, and I didn't figure there was any dirt on me. And so this started. By time it got, and he told me, they will send a messenger to President Trump, get President, convince President Trump that he should send out a negative tweet on me. That will be the trigger for the full court press all across America on me, the full broadside barrage. And um, so I understood that. I went to see that messenger. That name is in the book, by the way. Um, when that, that happened January 8th of 2019, I knew also that message went up to that messenger's handlers. Then the next very next morning, January 9th, Randy Feinstra, now my successor, announced that he would he would run for my seat in Congress. The most improbable date for anyone to do that, two years out, and the days about uh, was about four days before he was supposed to swear in to his state senate seat. Uh, so that was illogical. Messenger message on the eighth, and announcement of a campaign a primary opponent on the ninth. The very the morning of the tenth came the New York Times story.
0: Hang the New on York a second. Time
2: story that is. Hang. On.
0: Hang yes. Stop. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you because that's a lot to absorb. And I just want to say. <laughs> yeah, it is. You may not be willing, but I will. Senator Joni Ernst was the messenger. She betrayed you. And she was the one who was supposed to get Trump to try to to, to tweet the tweet against you. You guys, had, you and President Trump, had gotten to be even though you supported Senator Cruz. Uh, you guys had a great relationship, right? Can you explain that just for a second before we take go pick up with a timeline here?
2: Well, I can. We communicated back and forth for several years, uh, but then uh, as the then as the presidency. Uh, uh, began to the race began to emerge. Um, I had gone to South Carolina and gone to New Hampshire in some of these races before, so I met up with President north now President Trump in new Hampshire, and we got we got to meet there and I had a discussion with it and he 'd come to Iowa and did an, he did a fundraising event for me. It was a very successful fundraising event, so we had a good relationship, and I was always looking for the most principled full spectrum constitutional Christian conservative that I could find for president, so it was very close in that decision. Also, in February 24th of 2015, uh, David Bossie of Citizens United and I did an event in Des Moines that had about a dozen presidential candidates, some of them future presidential candidates. Now, other speakers on there, and we had conservatives in those seats all day from 9 in the morning till 5 at night, and it was 1,250 people plus standing room. And so we really launched the presidential race, and I introduced President Trump there before those, uh, that crowd. So we had a good relationship and we had a good relationship after he was elected uh, when he invited me to the White House and sit down in the Oval Office and have some friendly chats. And I did put one narrative in the book on that friendly chats, Andy.
0: You d- oh, I don't know. I get to read everything. So you ha- if there's something I'm supposed to know, I don't know it.
2: <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean to do that to you. Uh, I, just, uh, I mean, in fact, I should, I should tell the friendly chat because I already set yes. the lead for it. <laughs> but, yes, you should. But, uh, <laughs> yes, you uh, should tell uh, it. <laughs> so after after um, Donald Trump was elected president, and uh, I was invited out to the Oval Office with five or six other members, and uh, here I am, the national co-chairman for Ted Cruz's presidential campaign. And uh, I always like to speak Last anyway, So he sits me in, in Mike Pence's chair, which Mike wasn't there uh, at that particular time. And is each one of them got a chance to talk. And he came around to me and, and I'm last. And he said, well, I want to say this about Steve King. I raised more money for Steve King than anybody ever did. And it's not technically clu- true, but it's actually close enough that I wouldn't dispute that. It's very close. And so I just looked at him and I said, "Well, Mr. President, I market tested your immigration policy for you for fourteen years. That should be worth something." <laughs> and, and we had a good laugh over that. <laughs> well, so, and uh, of course, that's our the point,
0: but the point, the point of that story, besides it's funny, is that you actually did. President Trump came to you and talked to you about your immigration policies, and much of, a lot of his policies were based on what you had been talking about all those years. Correct.
2: Oh, they sure were. As a matter of fact, uh, it is all things I believed, and I'd been on the floor. I'm more or less uh, uh, Tom Tancredo led the charge on this. I went to see him as soon as I was elected to Congress. We have a great personal relationship, he and I. I I kind of threaded myself in with him, and I also brought my own ideas in and picked it up when Tom left. Then then I more or less owned the issue in Congress. Uh, Then I had a lot of that material on my website. And when my first chief of staff was Donald Trump's first hire in Iowa, name's Chuck Laudner, and Chuck is terrific. And he called me and he said, I've got this task to get this immigration policy up here. And the policy I know, the policy I think Trump supports, is the policy that you've been doing for all this time. Is it okay if I borrow some of that? And I said, copy and paste liberally. And so uh, that is what happened. And and then over time, his policy got amended a little bit, but it always had the character of Donald Trump on it is always was his imprimatur on it, but a lot of that material was based on mine.
0: All right. So now, what I'd like to do is go back to your story and let me say this: mm-hmm. at least the timeline, that particular story of uh, how this came to a head. I want because I wanted to lay down your relationship with President Trump and what it meant for Joni Ernst to go and to try to talk him into tweeting something that would hurt you and start the ball rolling. Rolling. But the one thing I want to emphasize. We're not now talking about the radical left coming after Congressman King. We're talking about Republican establishment. Uh, You make a statement in your book, Steve. I tried to jot it down here. Uh, You say establishment Republicans may dislike Democrats, but they hate serious conservatives. And I can say that's an understatement. That being the backdrop, you've already told us that Governor Branstad in Iowa was upset with you, and as soon as you had the victory with Ted Cruz in Iowa, in spite of his not wanting Ted to get that, um, that nomination, there was enmity, and he set out to try and get you, out of, get you out. And you had. I know you said you won that last election by 3.4 points, something like that, but before that, you'd, you'd always won handily, had you not?
2: Yes, I was 60% and up in that area. We slipped into 58 or 59 once or twice, but it was in that zone within yeah. within 60% to 65%. And a lot of that without spending a dime. Now, who gets elected to Congress or reelected to Congress without spending a dime on advertising in a district that, yes, it's an R-plus district, but it is not what you call uh, one of those solid districts that you see in a place like Texas?
0: Yeah, so from my vantage point, as a person who covers this stuff, Uh, it was true. I could see that your truth speaking, uh, unapologetic truth, was such an irritation to Republicans, just such an aggravation, and even more so then. I think we have now probably percentage-wise more hardcore conservatives, but not as many. You were certainly much more in the minority even then. Okay, so... Joni Ernst is supposed to go and she's but she's deceiving you. You don't she's actually claiming she's not that person, but she was that person. Uh, what kind of success did she have with President Trump or did that even get accomplished?
2: You know, I don't know if it ever did. I mean, I write in my book about what I know and and I can be I can suspect, but I but I but I know this that she convinced me that day that she wasn't that person. And I know that because when I walked out of our office, I did a, I did a, a download from what I remembered into audio, into a, a, re- did a recording. And I listened to that recording sometime in the last year or two, and it was upbeat. And, and but in any case, I knew that J- Joni's handler is a fellow by the name of Dave Kochel. And Dave Kochel came out of Branstad's camp. He's in Governor Reynolds' camp too. And he's in the camp of Mitt Romney and all the rhinos out there that attacked me. And so I'm confident that that message went from Joni Ernst's office up to Dave Kochel, whether it was direct or through a chain of her chief of staff, who who has, has a connection there, too, I understand. Uh, so that message went up to that to that call. And when that happened, then it came down. And I think it was message to Randy Feenstra, you must announce now. What's curious is that following morning after I met with Joni Ernst, Randy Feenstra spent the morning deleting his entire Twitter account. Everything in it, he scrubbed it clean. And so the first post on that is, I'm going to challenge Steve King. And and so that's that's another thing that ties this together. So I don't know that she was she was the, she agreed to be the messenger, but I'm convinced that that conversation with her put it up through the chain and brought about this chain of events. They had to pull the trigger because I said I know what's up, and I'm going to blow this thing wide open nationwide if you try that stunt. So they decided to kill me off immediately so that I couldn't spread this message of what they were t- preparing to do.
0: All right, so, but now here's the, here's the bit that I don't quite get, and this is, goes back to your story. You are, um, you then are going your t- chief of staff tells you that the New York Times wants to interview you, and you think, you know, it's a good, what an interesting uh, timing. I, this is a chance for me to state, you know, what I'm all about, and I'll do this interview, and it'll be a good thing, and somehow you had a mix-up, Your chief of staff tried to warn you not to do the interview because he got more information, and you didn't get that in time. So the phone rings, and you pick it up. And there's the music, so we have to take a break, Congressman. But when we come back, we'll pick it up with that story, and uh, this will kind of give you a chance to we'll we'll talk about what they wrote about you, and then, um, oh, boy, we'll never get to all of it. But the book is great. The book is great. It's called uh, Walking Through the Fire, the fight for the heart and soul of America, and trust me, it's not just about Congressman King. It really is about the way things are working in this country, uh, with the left uh, trying to destroy people and the uh, the Republican establishment rhinos. You fill in the blank, trying also to, to destroy conservatives. Uh, it's what I tell you almost every day. You hear me say this almost every day, but here is the story an example of one of the great stories about great meaning and scope. I'll be right back. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget
2: to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at sandy at afr.net. That's sandy at afr.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio.
3: Tonight, Steve King refusing to say if he'd resign, as the House voted to condemn white supremacy and white nationalism, after King told the New York Times he didn't understand why such terms were offensive.
1: White supremacy and white nationalism are evils. They are insidious.
3: But the resolution stopped short of formal punishment for King. And even King himself voted for it.
2: I'm putting up a yes on the board here because what you state here is right and it's true and it's just.
3: The only no vote came from Democrat Bobby Rush, who said it didn't go far enough. He's introduced a resolution to censure King. Republicans stripped King of his committee assignments as punishment. And Liz Cheney, the first House leader to say King should leave entirely. Is there a place for Steve King in the Congress considering his rhetoric? I agree with uh, Leader McConnell, actually. I think he should find another line of work. McConnell today making his point clear.
2: Congressman uh, King clearly uttered words that are unacceptable in America today.
3: Casey Hunt, NBC News, The Capitol.
0: Well, I can't wait to hear what those words are. They were unacceptable in America culture today, uh, so says McConnell. And so, uh, Congressman Steve K- King is our guest. If you want to know more of the details of this, get the book "Walking Through the Fire." But Congressman, you are then, I believe, as the story goes, you are expecting this call, and um, you don't have your recording device. You did not get the the e- tweet or the email from your staffer telling you that you think you're they think you're being set up. Don't take the call. You pick up the phone thinking that this is a call you should take, and uh, it's a reporter from the New York Times. So tell us what happened.
2: Well, yes, I'd gotten a text uh, the day before from Trip Gabriel of the New York Times and um, a couple of text exchanges. But he wanted to do this interview that he'd been directed by his chief editor to write a story about why my immigration policies have been adopted by Donald Trump and why they're now being driven out of the Oval Office. Well, that's a pretty flattering proposal. And uh, But I told him that that needs to be cleared through my communications director, John Kennedy, a stellar individual, I do have to say, and uh, that I thought that my schedule might be open at 8.30 in the morning, at, but just run it through there. And so uh, I usually read in the morning early on until I have to go take a shower and get ready to go. And so I was in the shower at 8.52 a.m. when John Kennedy sent me a tr- an email that said, I think it's a trap. I killed a story last December. They were trying to do this. I think it's a trap. Don't take the call. Well, I didn't see that email. I got out of the shower. The phone rang at 830. I presumed it was in in the interview set up by John Kennedy, and it turned out to be more or less a cold call from from Trip Gabriel. And so I did a 56-minute interview there, but I had no means to tape it because I was in my little hovel there in uh, in my apartment in D.C. So um, that's what happened. Uh, the bait was strong, and but the would have still been okay if I'd have caught that email before I picked up the phone. Okay, then, so everybody wants to history. know
0: what did you say. Everybody wants to know what mm-hmm. you said that made you such an enemy of the people.
2: Well, the, what was printed in the story It can't can't be what I said. Um, of course, not having a tape and remembering every single word and pause in, with clarity is impossible for anybody to do, even though Kevin McCarthy says he can. Uh, he's proven otherwise on that. Uh, but, but through it all, it's this. Trip Gabriel admitted that he fed those terms to me, white nationalist and white supremacy. He admitted he fed that to me. If he fed that to me, at the time, I was talking about how the left was weaponizing terms. There's an interview in Christian Science Monitor that supports what I've just said on that, and there's a tape recording in in their hands also that lays this out, that these terms are being weaponized. And so, What I believe I said, and I say that with that qualification, because no one can actually be 100% sure, but I know what my brain does, and what comes out of my mouth is what my brain processes. So what what I believe was the more the exact presentation was, uh, he talked about, I had mentioned weaponizing terms, and I would have used racist, Nazi, white nationalist, white supremacist, but Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? That would be, that part is equal. Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? But what Crib Gabriel did is he compressed those three ideologies together, the two odious ideologies, and Western civilization, which I've been a champion of for a long time. And so that the simple misquote in there would be, if there had been a pause, a comma, or a hyphen between the two odious ideologies and Western civilization, that would have conveyed that thought. But when I say, how did that language become offensive, that is always singular. It's not plural. It would have been, how did these terms become offensive uh, if I had been talking about the three? And we've done a full analysis under uh, Nexus and uh, it was something like 200—no, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think it's 279 times that I had been quoting advocating Western civilization. And the number of times that I had even uttered the term white nationalist or white or white, white nationalist or white supremacy, uh, throughout my whole history was zero. And then if you look at the utilization of say white nationalist in, in history from the year 2000 on, it was virtually unused up until November of 2018 when it launched from one to 200 times a year everywhere. That's the virtually unused on up to 10,000 times just in the last month and a half of 2018 and 30,000 times the following year. So the left clearly weaponized those terms. The New York Times clearly used them against me and branded me with them, even though I hadn't even uttered the term uh, in any kind of search. It wasn't in my thought process. I didn't actually even know what a white nationalist was um, until I uh, I was asked that question. Mm
0: -hmm. I just remember that, that. I do remember, now that you've said that, that I remember when I first heard that term. I thought, what are they talking about? What are they talking about? And then I also thought, well, what's white nationalism? I don't. I, I just have no idea. So it was a concocted uh, uh, phrase. They used it in this conversation. And could I say, also, Congressman? I, without going into detail, I was set up by a New York Times magazine author in much the same way several years ago. I think his name was Zev. Uh, and he misreported completely what I said. I actually wrote him a letter. I said, "You know, I never said that." He put words in my mouth that I never said. This is what they do. Okay, this is what they do. And so um, you tried to defend yourself, uh, but what was the response?
2: Well, there, there, nothing I said was had any impact at all. They had. This was. I boiled it down to this. It it was instantaneously launched on that day, a lynch mob. Um, I went to the floor of Congress twice in that week, on Thursday and on Friday, and I I made it really clear where I stood, and I clarified what had happened, and I wanted the whole world to know, this is the only place you're going to get the truth is out of me, if you're dealing with the media or Steve King, or Kevin McCarthy for that matter, and uh, it it had no result at all. It was like more gas on the fire. And whatever I would try to do, they would take a word or two or three and write this insulting story out of it. So it became, whenever my Google page opened up, I saw my face on that and quotes on that day after day after day. There was there was no way to put that genie back in the bottle. I described it as the blood of the lynch mob was up, and you can't take on a, a lynch mob, especially when it's being led by the sheriff, Kevin McCarthy.
0: Yes, and uh, let's talk about his role in this. Go into more detail, if you would, about what you think his role in in this whole process was.
2: Well, it's clear it was strategized from the beginning. We've we've made that clear in the earlier segment, I believe. And so when this came down, um, it came down on a Thursday. So I had Thursday evening and Friday to speak on the floor of Congress. I got on a plane Friday night, I guess it was, and came back here on Saturday and um, it was it was actually that afternoon when I figured out the cadence of this. I tried to reenact that interview with Trip Gabriel, and it came across how I would have said those words. And I said, Oh yeah, I know that's I know that's what it was. And it was kind of like a revelation. But it's 6:30 a.m. on Sunday morning. My uh, Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff contacted my chief of staff 6:30 a.m. on Sunday morning and wanted to set up a meeting between her boss and me. So Sarah, my Sarah, Sarah Stevens, my chief of staff, set that meeting up for four o'clock on Monday. And within minutes, Kevin McCarthy was on national TV, trashing me in story after story and venue after venue. And he was quoted in the Green Greenland was saying, I'm going to kick Steve King off of all of his committees. And so that's, it's easy to see that Kevin McCarthy jumped on this thing. He was turning it into a national story, and he was laying down the marker on what he was going to do to me and deprive my constituents of before ever having talked to me. And I, I had a cell. He's got my cell number, and I have his. But uh, that's true for all these critics that, from uh, I'll say Mitch McConnell on down of all of the Republicans that attacked me. Not one of them called me up. Not one of them wanted to know what my side of the story was or what the truth was. In fact, I don't know if they ever read the quote. I think they just went ahead and uttered what they needed to utter to cloak themselves in virtue at the expense of every conservative in America.
0: Steve, we should probably make clear that this, uh, what happened to you was extreme, but it's not an aberration. Uh, under, you know, John Boehner and then Kevin McCarthy and uh, the leadership of the House, we get could, could talk about the Senate too, but let's just say that they tried to dry up the well. They would not give money for reelection campaigns or people like you. Uh, they would uh, take away your office operating expenses. Uh, you were shunned, and they tried desperately, in other ways, uh, to quiet and uh, mute and m- encourage to get out members of Congress who were causing trouble on many, many... If- like, like immigration, that was very inconvenient for them because a lot of them wanted to... Uh, they wanted basically open borders. They didn't care. Uh, a lot of Republicans, and you guys were standing in their way. So this was not really aberrant behavior, uh, behavior on their part, was it?
2: Well, once you once you look into it in that way, no. Um, but to go to that extreme,
0: uh, uh, yes, to take no. one of
2: the most popular members of Congress, that and, and and by the way, take a look at the Republican platform. All these issues that I stood on, from border security to pro life to pro-marriage, by the way, and maybe the only member of Congress that went to the steps of the Supreme Court to let the world know what I thought of Obergefell. I fought against that here in Iowa also. Um, the balanced budget piece of this, fighting Obamacare, Michelle Bachman is the only person that fought alongside me all the way through and harder than I did even. The rest of them were following along because they had to. Piece after piece of the Republican platform, I stood for every, every important issue. And they don't believe in the platform, and they have contempt for the grassroots and we're not going to fix this problem we have in our federal government as long as we have that current crop of leadership. And that does include Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. And it goes on down the line through their ranks at a a layer or two or more. And by the way, these are protégés that are coming up now. Um, McCarthy's been out picking candidates in primaries across this country, picking the rhino candidate, dropping a million dollars into their campaign, propping them up. He can guarantee that vote with a million dollars. And so then the, the conservatives are being defeated across the board in primaries. He's shaping the Congress for America, and it doesn't include principled, full-spectrum, constitutional Christian conservatives. If you oppose his, his gay agenda, uh, his, his spending agenda, his don't-touch-a-social-issue agenda, and even—and I, and I just say also the heartbeat bill. I picked that up and championed the heartbeat bill. We were at 174 co-sponsors on the heartbeat bill with a tremendous amount of effort, including Tom DeLays and Janet Porters, who's running for Congress now. And, and McCarthy killed that bill. We had the votes to pass it out of judiciary. He had the votes to pass it on the floor without exceptions for rape and incest. McCarthy killed it. He couldn't have me be successful and he doesn't want to see pro-life legislation come through. I'll pause a little bit and say, at least if it has exceptions for rape and incest, which he has advocated for.
0: Well, I would also say they all say they're pro-life, but they really do nothing about it. But That would take another segment, but it's true. Mm -hmm. They love to boast and and preen, but they really do nothing. As long as the vote doesn't really cost anything, uh, they're they're happy to do it. And I want to say something on your behalf here. Uh, People are pretty clear now that uh, that I think uh, the the world of you have great respect. But let me just say that... um, one of the things that Congressman King can say freely, his staff, all the years that have worked with him, they all stood by him. And that, to me, that does that not say something about a person's character? They never deserted him. Uh, that's his whole staff. And then you think about the people that worked with him, that knew him well. He has endorsements in this book of, by Michelle Ma, uh, Michelle Bachman, Louis Gohmert, uh, Jim Demet, who was a senator at the time, um, and then also uh, Ted Yoho, who served— uh, in Congress from Florida with Congressman King uh, and Tom Tancredo and other other staffers. Uh, so he has endorsements from people who know him well. It's not just me. Uh, and I, I just wanted you to hear his story. That's just part of it. The rest of the story you'll have to read <laughs> in Walking Through the Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. It is really dramatic, well-written by Congressman King, and really worth your time. Congressman, where can, can they get this in all the usual places, this book?
2: All the usual, the usual places, but I'd ask them to go to faithfultext.com, faithfultext.com, that goes to Ali North, or if they go to steveking.com, steveking.com, I'll autograph the book and ship it out with my own hand.
0: Oh, there you go. That oh, that oh, We're going to choose that then, steveking.com, and we'll put that on our getter page along with information about the book. And, um Congressman, it's a pleasure. Thank you, and I'm glad you lived to tell the story, unlike Ulysses S. Grant. All right, see you in the morning on AFR Talk.